Hi, and welcome to the Chainsaw Carving Podcast. In this episode, I get to talk with Chris Wood all the way from Wales. Um, we did have a little bit of sound glitching, but I think I was able to edit it so that you'll still be able to hear all the cool stuff that Chris had to say. Hi, Chris. Hi there. How are you doing, Molly? Good. How are you? Uh, I'm okay. Bearing up. Lockdown's getting a bit boring now. It's uh, getting a bit tedious, isn't it? Yeah, ours is, we're still in it, but ours is starting to ease, so we can yeah. do some things. Well, they're, they're talking about opening up shops now, regular shops, and, um, but we'll see, you know. Sure. That's all you can do is, is wait and see what happens. But, yeah, whatever, everybody's in the same boat, really, isn't we? Yep. Okay, so yeah. the first question I have for you uh, what's your story? How did you get started chainsaw carving? Okay, well, this this is quite a long story. Um, uh, it, well, it's it, it's kind of a, the the, the car, chainsaw carving was a progression from just carving and doing general artwork. Um, so, you know, I've been really into carving and whittling and stuff pretty much all my life I, I um i always remembered doing um carvings on the beach in spain my family used to take us um to spain every year um and i'd sit on the beach and get really bored because i i hate being bored and sitting on the beach doing nothing uh, some people can sunbathe i can't do that it's uh no when I was a kid, I, I'm sure um, uh, I, I must have. I, I've got dyslexia, so um, I must have had ADD as well, and all sorts of other behavioural issues. And I was like a, a live wire back then. Um, but what my father used to do was um, take us to the Spanish markets, and they'd have these amazing-looking knife shops there, and um, he'd buy me a pen knife. And then I'd sit on the beach and I'd be whittling. I'd pick up lollipop sticks and um, carve them into planes and stuff. Because uh, I was really into planes when I was a kid. Uh, my, my father was, um, he used to repair planes in the war. He was posted on an aircraft carrier and on an island um, in the Pacific. And he used to tell me all these stories about planes. And that always got me fired up, you know. Um, so, yeah, discarded lollipop sticks, make them into planes, and that was me happy all day, you know, with that or having a swim. Um, but the, the Spanish kids, it's like uh, my my uh, business savvy was never that great. Um, the Spanish kids used to kind of blag these off me, blagging is asking for something. Um, and then uh, they would sell them to the, the British tourists. So, uh, you know, I'd just give them free and just make them. I was enjoying making. It's always been me making stuff. Um, so it kind of progressed from there. You know, I, I I grew up next to some woods, and my father taught me how to use a chainsaw when I was 14, and um, it was only for firewood back then. Um, and we'd, we'd, you know, go out and use this big old 1970s Husqvarna or something that used to, rattle so much my hands would like 
be tingling for ages afterwards, just like uh, the crazy experience with the store. And, you know, there was no real uh, PPE back then. You know, it was just a dirty pair of boots and an aluminium hat and some gloves. Yeah. Um, but that's how I, I grew up um, with the woods and, you know, axes and chopping stuff and making bows and arrows and uh, I, I learned respect the sharp tools at an early age. I chopped my finger off with an axe and uh, when I was nine years old and that was a big lesson. So I've been really health and safety conscious since then, you know, it, because it doesn't make a huge amount of difference. <laughs> I, <laughs> I still get injured. You, you still like, because like, uh, um, when you get an injury, it blindsides you. You never expect that to happen. Sometimes you do. Sometimes you think, oh, I shouldn't be doing this, but that's usually before you fall off the ladder. Or so, um, yeah, I, I was always doing art and stuff because that's what I focused on. Um, but art and metalwork and woodwork, that, that was my go-to subject in school. And I used to... Um, Asked the the, science, the woodwork teacher to, to like stay in the woodwork rooms in in my dinner hour, my lunch break, um, just to carry on carving, making things because that's where I felt at home. And and uh, because of the dyslexia back then, it was um, I was a bit of an outcast. You know, I couldn't get on with anybody. I was in between um, groups of people and. It, it was it was a difficult time in school, but yeah. that was my refuge. They wouldn't let me in the art room, um, and but the woodwork teacher would. Um, anyway, um, so after school, I kind of left, and I, I really didn't have any idea what I wanted to do. The the, the running joke was, you know, um, you're going to leave school and become an artist. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. No, you're going to draw the doll, which was like a, it's like social security, you know. It's the it's the the money that the government pays. Uh, sure. So, um, I, I wasn't expecting to get anywhere, and, and uh, I, I was actively dissuaded from going into the art side of things. But no, they were like, no, you can't do that. And then after. After a bit, I managed to get a job in working on old MG cars, you know, the MG BGTs and MGAs. And there was this lovely fella uh, who taught me metalwork and stuff. So that's the kind of route I followed. But then uh, I got a test with dyslexia. And as soon as I found out that I was actually dyslexic and I wasn't like a bit dull, like everybody was saying um I, I just thought i'll get the ball rolling and, and see what i can do and i met a lovely teacher john hampton who was really helpful and um chris uh, what was your teacher's name john hampton okay and he he um he's a great friend of mine still um and he, he the the class i was doing was doing you had to do practical but you also have to do art history as well. Uh, and I had to do this in the night because um, I was working all day, like uh, seven till seven most of the time. 
and then going on doing this night course in the evenings um, just to kind of uh, break up the monotony of metal work. I, I was so hideously bored with that. It was it used to frustrate frustrate me. I was good at it, don't get me wrong, uh, and it paid a lot of uh, my way. But um, yeah, it was it was soul destroying. Um, so uh, I managed to get half decent grade, um, even though my my writing skills weren't great. He judged me on what I was writing, not what I was spelling. I I kind of my my practical side was you know top of the class. But it's always been the same with me. I, I'm always let down by the, the writing side. But I digress. Um, so after the two years course there, um, I really had a passion for painting. I was like, doing oil painting, life drawing, and all this sort of thing. And they were running a draw- life drawing class. So uh, I did six years every week painting another model doing another painting and my my teacher said i had a very sculptural line um the way i, I marked and it, it was very um it, it was it was like all the art the, the good thing about taking that a level is i learned about artists and i learned about different techniques and who was what and who did this and how to read painting and how to read sculpture you know um so that was massively helpful Doing this life drawing class, that's how I met John Hobbs, who um, was a chainsaw sculptor. And I'd never heard of it. It, it was, you know, I, I was being told by my teacher, look, you need to start doing sculpture. You, you've got this three-dimensional mind. All right, okay. And then I spoke to this guy, and he's like, oh, well, um, what do you do, mate? Oh, yeah, I, I do chainsaw sculpture. Hold on, what? Chainsaw sculpture, that, that's like using a chainsaw to make sculptures. Yeah. Hold on. I, I can, I can use a chainsaw and I'm, I'm supposed to be doing sculpture. And I, I kind of just put two and two together. And then this was around about, uh, two, uh, 1998, I think. Round about then. That is that. That's when you met John. That's that's when I met this yeah, the John Hobbs, and uh, I, I I basically got my my dad's old saw. Um, he wasn't using it much then anyway. He was um, old, and um, uh, I, I I had a go. I made a, a few heads with some silver birch for this knackered up old saw, and um, I thought, well, you know, I'm enjoying this. This is the way. I kind of want to go, but I, I had no information. I was I was doing this all, uh, picking it up as I was going along. You know, I had chisels and things like that, and I knew how to use an axe and what have you. But um, uh, basically, after that, I got made redundant and um, decided to kind of start my own business. So I went for art, and I thought, right, I'm going to put everything into this, and I'm going to go on and you know if i fail i fail if i don't then i'm gonna be doing what i enjoy doing i started off by doing all sorts of things you know mosaic painting sculpture 
uh, metal sculpture, uh, teaching kids, doing um, uh, green woodworking, living willow sculpture. It was just, it was just everything. Anybody who said, "Can you do this?" I'd go, "Yeah, I'll give it a go." If it's if it fails, it fails. And, it, it, and most of the time, I, I did a decent job, so I kind of started getting a good reputation. Um, and then uh, I was still kind of messing about and learning about saws. I took um, a chainsaw um, course and got my chainsaw license, which meant I could then actually do jobs on in people's gardens or, or on land other than, you know, where I owned or lived. Um, and I, I got a commission off the Wildlife Trust uh, to make a sculpture. And the, there was people visiting that as it was going on. And I got uh, another job from that and then another job and then another job and then got a, a residency at this place called Eco Dusky. Um, what was the place is, called, Chris? Eco Dusky. Okay. Um, and they, um, it, it means learn in Welsh. Eco Eco's the same in English and Welsh, and Dusky is, is learn in Welsh. So it, it, it was all about um, teaching problem kids, which was like right up my alley. You know, I, I, I could, I had empathy with them. I knew what they were going through. I knew the sort of turmoil they was going through. Uh, yeah, I forgot to mention that another thing that happened to me right then uh, when I started the business in 1999, my father passed. That, that kind of, in a way, gave me even more determination to to keep pushing. Did you say? And, did you say that's when your dad died? Yeah, um, yeah. It was. It was really sudden. He just had a stroke, and you know that was it. He was gone. So uh, yeah, I, I kind of just knuckled down and and um, just worked, worked to, to kind of to um, forget really to not forget, but it, it, I, I was using his tools as well. It was like my kind of is a way of remembering, you know. Yeah. So yeah, Eco Desky, they were, they were great. They they would let me kind of carve whatever they want they had this huge woodland and i could just go around and oh where we fancy that what do you reckon chris oh yeah i'll do this and it was great it was really freeing for me um and the the kids they they had this great ethos there they they um would take kids from the local area which was in um bridge end and um the right at that time, they, they had a, a high suicide rate for um, teenagers. And, uh, yeah, these kids, uh, it, it was, Bridge End was this epicenter. So they were taking these kids out of the schools, and not that they were in schools to start with. They were, like, just um, skiving off all the time. Um, but they were, they'd take them up to this beautiful woodland, and I'd teach them how to use an axe properly and they build something so it would be confidence building. And then as soon as they got frustrated, they would take them off and they'd do Reiki on them or hands-on healing or um, all sorts of 
crazy healing, you know, alternative therapy, healing type things. And they, they'd come back completely changed, really chilled. You know, the, the, the one kid would be trying to chase another kid around with an axe one minute, and then he'd be coming back and hugging his mate. <laughs> and it, 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 was, um, it was crazy. So that, that's kind of how, how the ball got rolling. Um, but for the first kind of 10 years or so of that business, I was doing all sorts. Um, working with WOMAD, um, the world of music, art, and dance. Um, they're a great foundation. They, they do these huge festivals all over the world, um, get local children involved. They, they, they make a carnival, you know, and uh, build giant set of scrap, and they flew us all over the planet to Abu Dhabi and Gran Canaria and Spain. So um, this place that was having you or making the big carnivals, what was it called? Um, it was um, called Womad. Okay. Um, you can look them up there on the internet, the Womad Foundation. It was kind of started uh, between a couple of people. Uh, uh, Peter Gabriel was involved. Um, but it's been running since the 70s. And it's all about world music. I, okay. I, I really got into the world music scene back then. They they have them in Britain. They have them in Australia. Um, I think they, they recently did one um, over in South America, but that might have got stopped because of COVID. Um, but yeah, that was that was great fun to do. But I wasn't making any money. I was doing like local festivals and events and things. The, the same sort of uh, material workshops. Carnivals, uh, giants, that sort of thing, um, and then I would get a, a sculpture commission. So I'd go off and do that, then come back, and, and I never kind of really focused on one thing. And then I managed to get um, my my present workshop in Killian, uh back in two thousand and seven, um, and that was a bit of a breakthrough because uh, I suddenly had the space to to carve indoors and just open up big doors and I could carve there and do big things and the guy next door had a forklift and the other guy next door could fit, fit my sculptures for me and all of a sudden I could take on big commissions um, and that was it from yeah. that point on it, I, it was just like a flood of of chainsaw carvings and, and wood carving work um, and it, and it kind of it's just got more and more, and I, I barely get a, a job these days in a different medium. You know, I I've done other things like um, like polystyrene sculpture, the uh, polystyrene, and that was that was in these two huge storms we had at the, at the tail ends of two hurricanes. Sorry, I cut out a little bit. What did you make out of polystyrene? An elephant. Oh, okay, that's what I thought. It's it's in this um, place called the Noah's Ark Zoo, um, over in Bristol, and um, they wanted to recreate the biggest ever tusker known to man, and this uh -huh. thing measured pretty much six meters to the top of its head, and um, I made the whole thing out of polystyrene with a steel frame, and they 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 could walk up. Um, some steps under the trunk and then you, you kind of go down a slide and come out this 
butt end. (laughs) 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 There's this big red slide coming out the butt end. (laughs) It was was then covered in chicken wire and then um, covered in concrete and then painted up. That was done by another artist, but I had to do the, the main sculpting. And that was fun. You know, it, it, it's always nice to use a different medium, you know. Um, but I really enjoy wood. I, I say, I keep thinking I, I'd like to do other things, but, you know, I keep buying chainsaws and keep, <laughs> you just keep doing woodwork. So, you know, yeah. I guess I'm, I'm stuck with it, you know. <laughs> I guess if I was supposed to do metal, I would have been called Chris Metal. You know? <laughs> just followed, followed the, my way really just um self-taught really and it, it wasn't I, I kind of uh discovered a lot of this stuff in a bubble and um and then met met someone called simon hedger um and he showed me a, a carving bar and I, I i you know i was doing it with normal bars up to then right said, well, what is this magicianry what is this magic you know basically you got <laughs> got a, a little saw with a, a, a little dime bar on the end and he just twisted it like that and he bored through through a, a log and I was like oh mate I've got to get one of them <laughs> and right. uh, I, I, I started discovering a bit more about uh, the tools because obviously the, the more you do them you know you're trying to find ways to cut corners that you can get to a certain skill level and then you have to get like other things to speed things up or do the work slightly better, you know. Mm-hmm. There's not many carves around that just use a big round end bar. You're going to be like flagging. Um, but I didn't really um, know anything about the competitions or, or anything else. You know, I'd heard about Woodfest, and that's about the only thing I'd known about. Um, but, you know, that was for someone else. It wasn't for me. And I was never into competitions. And then I, I thought, you know what, I'm going to go for one of these. And I applied for the English Open in 2017 and um, got second place. And uh, I, I was absolutely blown away. I was like, oh, my God, I'm as good as these guys. This is this is really good. And... Uh, I haven't stopped since. Like hit the floor running with that, really. Yeah. um, Yeah, it was a big, big breakthrough for me. And and to speak with my peers, with other carvers, and and watch them do that, and and actually know that there's there's people all over the world um, that do this sort of thing. And it's such a, it's it's a brotherhood, really, isn't it? You know. Yeah. Uh, Not being sexist, but. It's a sisterhood as well. <laughs> but, I'm good with it either way. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, that that was just, like, amazing for me. And um, I'm always grateful for that break um, to do that. So, I hear that yeah. from a lot about feeling, like, secluded and, like, you're one of the only ones and then you get to an event and you're, like, my people. <laughs> Yeah. They're, they're here. Yeah. That, that, that event was the first time I met uh, Hikuru Kadama. And yeah. I was like, oh my God, I'd only seen this fellow on Facebook. And next thing he's standing next to my camper van. 
I'm like, oh, sick group. <laughs> and now we're, now we're, we're good mates. Like, <laughs> it's like, wow. It, 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 um, it, it, you, you kind of let your work speak for yourself in a way, you know. You, you get that respect by someone, you know, doing well. And then they, that's amazing, mate. But hold on a minute. But look at yours. That's amazing. It's someone you can talk to. I, I, if I talk to one of my other friends about um, about woodworking, they, they're like, oh, bore off, Chris. We've heard enough about chainsaws, but, you know, it's something you can talk about all day. <laughs> yeah. And, and that maybe goes into, I was going to ask you, too, talking about events with with COVID this year. It's been really tough for shows. Yeah. Have your shows been canceled? Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 been appalling. I was um, I was really looking forward to doing so many events. It was uh, it was like a, a dream year for me. You know, I was going to be doing um, the Husky Cup with Simon O'Rourke and Ikaru Kadama, um, wow. and they, you know, to have them as my teammates. Oh, wow! Yeah. Like unbelievable. Uh, I was going to do the Lithuania open again which was like that was going to be a big get together from the last year's one and uh, we were going to have a ball you know we were just looking forward to, to like seeing my mates again um, the the various ones in the UK the Sandringham Cup the English Open and um, uh, Four Nations thing they were going to do um, the US Open as well and uh, Chetwind, I was invited to Chetwind. I was, uh, and you know, I was supposed to be in there last week. What, what can you do? It, it was, it was like a yeah, bit of a kick in the nuts. You, you you've got to be realistic, and everybody's in the same boat. Everybody's had it cancelled. If they just uh, turn around and said, "No, Chris, you're not doing anything this year," then I'd be angry about it. But basically, right. everybody's had everything cancelled. So hopefully, hopefully they just transfer everything to next year, right? So you can have your same yeah, team, yeah. same people, well, and I, I know I'm invited back to Chetwind, so I'm I'm really kind of keeping keeping uh, high hopes for that to all right. go ahead. Um, uh, yeah, Lithuania is going to roll on. Everything else is just going to roll on to next year, as far as I know. But I actually just found out. I have an event in July in Colorado, and it's on. Wow. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe we're having it. I'm so excited. <laughs> cool. Oh, yeah, yeah that, that's it. There is some some talk about stuff happening there. Um, we were looking at August, if anything, um, that might suddenly happen. But a lot of it, I know, relies on sponsorship and stuff like that and um, if they can't well, get the back in they, they can't right and yeah. some people are even saying over here because like we had i have an event in september that's canceled already and i'm like yeah. wow that's a long ways out but somebody told me that insurance companies are telling people over here that they won't cover their event yeah, yeah exactly so it's, you're it's, like, oh. logistics it's like i was talking about this with uh, mark uh, um, the other day, and we, we, we were talking about, um, right, so you got this big field, and there's loads of fences around 
and we're the carvers, we're secluded, we don't have to kind of touch anyone or, or go too close. We still have to use the portaloos. You know, it, like it, we know that it stays on metal fences, but um, so you've got to have someone going around the entire place, wiping stuff down constantly. And then the, the speed car arena, you know, it will it will have people all the way around the speed car arena, and their the standard thing is they're, they're shoulder to shoulder. How how can you achieve that same atmosphere, that same capacity of people if they're not shoulder to shoulder? Um, just the fact that you know the food stores, everything. It, when you suddenly start getting into it, and you know that if someone touches something that someone else is going to touch, that has to be cleaned. Then, you know how how do you even police? That? How do you, how do you even like work out who's uh, who's touched what? And and you know, gonna, is there going to be money changing hands? Are we going to have to do everything by transfer? Um, right. You know, just just no money. Like, Everybody needs to wear a bubble. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can't chainsaw in a bubble. <laughs> well, I, did. I did for a few years, but um, you know what I mean. It's it's. Um, I've no idea how it can work without some sort of vaccine or, or 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 what you know you don't know do you any any big event that'd be rough to be an event person right now too because if you if you go ahead with the planning and then the government tells you you can't have it then you're yeah. out all your advertising money and everything that's a lot of money down the drain isn't it yeah and uh, you know, it's obviously the, the people who run the event they they make money on the event, but to to actually get the event going, it needs a, a, an awful lot more money. Um, and you know, if if someone's saying, "Oh yeah, we want to do this," and the only way we can do it is through the sponsors, and the sponsors, no, I'm not putting my name to that because if someone dies, that's on me. You know, right? People won't do it. They won't won't take the risk. Especially in insurance, you know what insurance is like. Even getting a car insured is a minefield. <laughs> insurance is a whole pain in the butt. We could talk about for hours. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's not. It's not. It's, it's a boring subject. <laughs> okay, so moving on to something less sad. <laughs> in, okay. your, in your photos, it looks like you have some kind of rig um, in your workshop that helps you lift logs, like it's on the ceiling. How is that set up? Right, yeah, that's that's basically um, it's it's a, a chain block system with a, a sliding trolley that's mounted on an I beam. Okay. So uh, this thing's got a, a ton capacity, one ton. Um, it, it's got a big H frame uh, that's bolted in into the walls and that joins that so it's like two h frames that you've got the the doors of the workshop which has got two big lintels that bolted to that and bolted to the h frame so i can uh lift a ton up outside my workshop say if i've got a log on a trailer i can just hoist it up with my my claw grab thing and um 
basically just slide it into the workshop. And so, it, this, it slides about 10 meters. Okay. So the thing, so the beam is on the H frame? Is the H frame supporting the beam? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. you've got the, the, the doorway, which has got a big kind of double I beam thing anyway. Yeah. And then that is bolted below those I beams and then you've got another H frame inside to support the other end of that big I beam that the okay. trolley runs. And, it, and it's a, it's a hanging trolley. So it, it kind of sits on wheels on the bottom rail of the I beam. You see what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's, it's like great. It, it helps so much. I was, you know, yourself, like just lugging big logs around and right. Okay. You've either got to work off the floor or you've got to get that log jacked up on something, even if you've got one of the, the pump up, um, like uh, bike jack things. Um, mm -hmm. You've still got to pick it up a foot to get it onto that. Right. So um, just just moving big logs about, you know, it's just been amazing. Um, such a great piece of work. Because uh, as soon as I got that, it meant I didn't have to like shovel a, a passageway to get things in and out on a trolley or whatever, uh, or a sack truck. Because um, you, you know yourself, you get like a foot deep in in sawdust, and you can't put like wheels over that. I, I had uh, a whole an old engine lift that would lift it, down, but you could lift it, but you couldn't move it because it was just clogged in into the sawdust. Sure. So this thing is is great. Yeah, it looked it, pretty cool. Winch it up. Slide it in. You can slide it in. Tip of tip, tip of your fingers. You don't have to even push it too far. It's, it's amazing. Nice. Uh, they they do have other things similar to that, which is like a a freestanding thing, which I nearly went for. But that's got wheels. So what's the point of having the wheels? It's still going to get clogged up in the sawdust. Sure. But um, yeah, if you've got an area to do that. And a way to do it, then I would do it. It saved my back a million times already. Cool. Okay, yeah. I also saw photos of you carving a badger, and you had grid lines all on the wood. Do you grid out all of your work? Um, sometimes, uh, yes. It, it, it's it's a kind of standard process with me now. Um, because uh, it, it, it's by far the, the way I've discovered the, the easiest way to get, um, you know, a, a picture uh, scaled up. So you know, it, it's a basic art technique. You just grid off something and you can scale up anything to any size. You know? um, but it, it becomes a little more different, difficult with the sculpture. Um, like some of the smaller pieces, I'll just make a pattern. But I pretty much always start with a drawing and then pull a grid on that drawing because it's a it's a good fail-safe because um, you know that, you know, it, it's going to be as accurate as you can possibly make. Um, For like the proportions? Yeah, I, I kind of learned how to do it um, oh, way back. It must have been around about 
2005, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I had this project up um, in Wolverhampton. And uh, I, it was uh, back then I actually had to hire a separate workshop for carving because I couldn't carve in the one I was in at the time. Um, but I, I was asked to do um, some school children, full size, and they, they, we actually went and um, took pictures of the kids uh, in, in different dress, uh, you know, the, the school that it, it was in um, it was a Victorian school and it, there was a new build on the old site and they wanted to celebrate the heritage. So I did a Victorian schoolgirl, then a wartime schoolboy, and then a pair of modern girls arm in arm. And um, we got them in the pose and um, I thought, right, okay. I've got these pictures. I've taken pictures all the way around. How am I actually going to transfer that onto a log? Um, I thought, well, I'll, I'll give a grid a go. You know, it's the only way I I could think back then the way to do it because that's the that's the technique I knew. You know, you can you can got all sorts of uh, different devices these days. Well, you always have. Traditionally, if if you were sculpting someone, you'd have someone sitting for you and you take measurements off them um but i couldn't do that um so yeah uh, I, I basically got one side flat and then put the grid on that and then drew the outline on that and you could do uh, the front profile and then i could go around and do the side profile and as soon as you get to a point where you've got specific points and you know your measurements are going to be right. Like I found the, the horizontal measurements, the, the lines going horizontal up, they're the important ones because they're the ones that don't really move too far. You know, you know the bottom of the nose is going to be at a certain point. That's always a problem, the bottom of the nose. Because if you, if you cut it too low, yeah, you can cut it too low and give yourself plenty of room, but then that offsets everything else. It's good to know the bottom nose is going to be exactly whatever measurement from the floor um, because that's that's measure point, you know. Top yeah. of the shoulder, top of the head. It, like, top of things, you can always go lower, but um, when you've got something that's the bottom of something, then you can't go anywhere. Everything has to, like, when you're carving, you start with, with, with quite a fat shape and you kind of make it skinnier and skinnier until all the points match up. But um, like I say, I, I use that a lot because it, it is, for me, the easiest way to, um, to scale something up. And what, um, what do you use to draw the grid on the wood? What works best? Well, I, I used to do everything with a spirit level and um, – that got really hard you know it's not too bad when you've got the flat side and you can just do that initial drawing but as soon as you've carved that profile out you've got to put your your marks back on but then as soon as it starts getting rounded like how do you get that mark all the way around the corner and and you know with the spirit level you know right. tilt it slightly the wrong way it's going to go all over 
So I, I've started using a, a laser lamp now um, because that that tracks all the way around perfect um, horizontal and vertical points. Um, and I can get all the lines to match up. You know, it, it's one of those things. It, you know, um, if you say you've got this box and you mark one side with the spirit level, then you mark the other side of the spirit level. By the time you've gone away all the way round, you'll be an inch out when you try and match those lines up. So there's, it takes out that little bit of uh, tolerance problem, you know, where, where things grow. You know, like if, if you, it's the difference between having a tape measure and marking 200, 200, 200, 200 with a tape measure and or marking with a ruler 200 and then from that point to that point 200, you end up with something uh, 820 instead of 800 exactly, you know? Right. And then just, um, just in case some people don't know, like with your grid method, yeah. you you grid off the photograph, right? And then you do the math just to like level yeah. it up. So, so like if your photograph has a one inch grid, then on your carving, you might do like an eight inch grid or however big you need to make it. Yeah. Well, basically I, I, I have to get the photograph into the computer and then put a grid over the top of that. Um, yeah. That way, because it's easier to mess around and get it exactly right. Um, I tend to use like um, an eight-inch box grid because um, you know that's that's plenty enough. Sometimes on on smaller stuff, but like you can put a grid on anything. But the the main thing is you need a point of reference on the photograph as well. So you need to know that this person is four foot six exactly. Okay. Uh, to yep. the top of the head, and then you can get your grid measured, so you know that you've got all these these grids, and it'll be it, it'll be exactly right to the top of that head. But there's also another issue with taking photographs of someone that you get foreshortening. Mm-hmm. So if if they're holding the hand towards you, um, then that hand will look the same size as their head obviously, because it's closer to you. And that works in a subtle way all over the body. So the front of the feet will look lower down than the back of the feet and all these other little subtleties. So it's it's not by any, any terms a fail-safe method, but it's enough information to get an accurate representation. As soon as you've got these movements, then you can just use your skill and uh, knowledge to to join all that together. You have to start with math and then finish with art. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's it's a, a great way. You know, it's a great way to check yourself because, um, like, it, it, it's it's almost like a fresh eye. You know, it, it's like when I used to do a, a, I used to teach a bit of like drawing as well and it was always easy to teach because you weren't staring at the painting for x amount of time and you could just come up behind and go oh god that looks terrible all right uh, so um 
David, what what do you um what do you think about that arm? And then as soon as they they kind of told um that there might be a problem with the arm, they can see it because sure. it, it's like a it's when you you're doing something wrong, half is kind of denial and half is laziness, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean. Not to sound too derogative, but I've done it myself. It's like there's something wrong with this. I don't know what, um, and do I want to change it? Is this gonna? Yeah, I, oh, I'm gonna have to rub all that out to change that. <laughs> it, it it doesn't work. So it, I I need I need something. I need that fresh eye. And sometimes I'll just leave a sculpture for a few days. And then go back to it, and then I can see right. Ah, oh, right. I've done that wrong, and that's my fresh eye myself. But it's a good way to check yourself. Mm-hmm. You, you can see something slightly wrong if you've got that measurement there. Then you know that the bottom of the elbow actually isn't two inches lower than. Like I can't stand seeing something out of proportion. It's, it's a pet hate of mine, and um, I, I beat myself up about getting anything wrong. Anytime, it's uh, but it, I I I spent such a long time training and seeing things and getting them in the right proportion. You know, when I was learning the live drawing, it was just with your thumb or your pencil, just doing it arms length and going working it out from the size of the head or whatever. Um, but sculpture is a different thing. You'll have a line and you'll follow that line in. But then you'll measure it again, and that line will change the further in it goes. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Uh, it, it's still really hard to do, but it gives you a fighting chance. You know? Right. <laughs> okay, something else that I saw. Um, so I saw you're carving like maybe a fisherman in Welsh oak. Yeah. And yeah. part of the way through the carving. Oh, sorry, go ahead. He's a lave net fisherman. It's spelled L A V E. These these okay. guys, they there's the Seven Estuary, which is like a massive river, and it and it um, comes in just just over the road here, just down the road from me. Um, and it's it's one of the biggest tidal ranges in the world. And this this river has a bore. You ever heard of a bore in a river? A no? bore like. A boar, as in uh, a wild boar, hog, a boar. Oh, it's, okay. No. It's a tidal boar. So uh, at certain spring tides, um, you get a tidal wave that comes up, and this river splits into two rivers, the, the, the Y and the Seven. And um, it, you get uh, this tidal wave go up the boar, and you get people riding on surfboards and all sorts. Is a, they ride uh, on surfboards, is that what you said? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> on motorboats and stuff. You, you should look it up. Yeah. Seven Estuary seven Tidal Ball. Just amazing. But there's also these guys, because it, it's a, a big salmon river. Oh. And um, there's these guys with the, the lave nets, which is this huge triangular net. And they, they stand in in this river that's got the, the, the fastest tidal range well, second fastest tidal range in the world. So they're literally taking their lives in their hands, stand there waiting for a salmon to come in. Wow. 
Yeah. Uh, so the, the the thing is that they're losing their licenses to do this. It's been going on for. It's part of the Welsh heritage. You know, it's it's the same as coracle fishing and stuff like that. It's it's ancient stuff, and it's it's a a, a dying thing, and um, that is to commemorate those guys. And he's a lovely chap as well, Martin. Anyway, cool. you, you ask a question about that story. Well, that's fine. I, I like hearing the backstory. That's really cool. Um, what I was going to ask you about it is you posted some pictures that partway through carving with this Welsh oak, you take time to repair the cracks. Oh, yeah. And I was just wondering, is that typical with that type of wood, or do you do that all the time? Or? Yeah. Oak is, um, oak is particularly... Um, bad for it. it well i wouldn't say particularly it, it's got uh all depends when the tree was cut if the the tree was cut in the summer then it's gonna have a lot more sap and as it dries out it's gonna crack more the force you know with um with soft woods it's not as bad you do get some that just ping and split open mm-hmm. um but oak tends to crack all the way around it's so dense and hard um it's got something like five percent shrinkage so if you work that out on the circumference it's quite a lot um so yeah it's it i I, this this week i've had to do uh loads of repairs on on oak pieces i had to repair this um giant ant in bristol the other day that had lots of cracks in it and that was in the oak and that was in um, oak and uh, redwood sequoia, um, and the sequoia barely split at all. But the oak has got big, you know, sharp cracks all over it. So uh, they they were finger traps, and it had to be filled. And then the the one the miner as well, the miner and son, I had to do it on the same day. Um, and it's just because of the hot weather we've had, like this. This year, this this um, spring has has been like summer. You know, we've had really hot, high temperatures. But before that, we had torrential rain. So, wood, you know, it's a natural thing. It's absorbing all the moisture in the air, and then all of a sudden, it's getting cooked and sure. it's cracked. And um, like I say, oak is is particularly bad for it. It does happen with other other woods, but. Um, the, the the thing is with the oak as well, it, it's n- really a structural issue uh, mm-hmm. because it's such a hard hard wearing timber. Um, but the the cracks are do end up like knife edges. You, know? you um, said they end up really sharp. Sorry, it cut out a little bit. Yeah, they they're a bit sharp. Um, when when it cracks, it, it all it it, it um, kind of one side will move slightly forward to the other. So it's a bit like a plain edge, you know? Okay. Um, I'm just always interested in what different wood does. Cause I know when I first started, um, we have the emerald ash borer. So all yeah. of our ash trees or people want me to carve them cause they have to cut them down. And yeah. just, I'd never carved ash before. And just like the fine, awful sawdust to breathe in. And then, it's, oh, yeah. so, yeah. it's so straight grained <laughs> that if you carve anything cross grain, it breaks off like right away. Oh, yeah. And then I also yeah. 
did a piece and I burned the whole thing, which I do a lot with pine. And yeah. I came back later and it like absorbed the burn. It was really weird. So yeah. now, now I don't burn ash anymore because the burn goes away. <laughs> I, 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 I use ash a lot here. I, I don't know whether it's called emerald ash. It's just standard ash. We've had a lot of ash dieback. Ash grows like a weed over here. Does it? And so all of a sudden we've got ash dieback. And um, like most of our woodlands are disappearing, disappearing because all the, 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 there's so much ash in it. Sure. Um, but I, I, know, I know ash works really well for splitting. You can do uh, reaving, splitting ash. It, it, it's beautiful for that. It, it works so well. You can yeah. turn it into poles and all sorts just by splitting straight down the end. And I, I learned that in. in the old Greenwood working before. Um, I, I really use ash for the sculpture. It is a, a beautiful white timber, but it, it just splits so much. Yeah, stuff it breaks out really easily. Either. You'll only get like 10 years out of it in the outside right. uh, before it just walks away. So Anytime I carve it, I don't put anything sticking out because I know it'll crack off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it will. Yeah, it likes splitting. There's certain woods that like split, and ash is one of them. Yeah, and I think our ash—it's just ash, so it's probably similar to yours. The thing that was the other thing I said—the emerald ash borer—it's a beetle that kills all the ash trees here. Ah, uh, right. Yeah, I got you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I bet it's a pretty beetle. <laughs> yeah. so many bugs killing all the trees um no, i was gonna good. ask i saw recently that you carved some french bulldogs that were like hyper realistic and maybe you already answered this when we talked about grid drawing um but do you have any tips for achieving that type of realism like like my family at first glance thought they were the real dogs <laughs> yeah yeah did, did you see the pictures of them next to the real dogs Yes, yeah, we did. <laughs> that was mad. When they sent me there, my, uh, the, uh, yeah, apparently the dogs went a bit loopy. Uh, but the, the thing with something like that is you need really good photo reference, really good reference material. Um, like I say, with, I used the grid on them to get them just the right size. Um, I had side profile pictures, back, front, top, as many photos as I could have. And mm-hmm. each dog, something I found out, I, I, I hadn't carved a, um, a French bulldog before, and um, I thought, oh, well, they're, they're all the same. They've just got that wrinkled face. There must be a standard wrinkle, but no, they're, they're bred completely different each year. Um depending on fashion. Some got flat noses, some got more sticky out noses, other got floppy ears, others got pointy ears, you know, and, and it's just, um, they're all completely different, like a fingerprint. Um, so if if you're going to carve someone's dog, something that they stare at all the time, something that they know, like the back of their hand, you've got to have really good reference. And that's, the, the key really um you know it, it just just um 
saying, oh, I'm going to carve something like a dog. That's not going to work. You need to carve that exact dog. Same sure, they're carving yeah. a portrait of someone. It has to look like that person. Um, and the only way you can do it is, is with good reference material. We, we're so lucky now um, with the internet. I, I could I say someone can phone me up, oh, yeah, can you carve me a, you know, a Danish sheepdog with short hair? Oh, what the hell is that? Okay, right, <laughs> go on the internet, find <laughs> some pictures. Um, all right, yeah, I, I got it. Um, but it has to look like mine. So then, you know, if they're too far away, then you can't really visit or whatever. Um, so I just make make a point of doing a photo shoot with anything that I'm like real, real looking, um, and get as many photos. It's all about looking at, at your picture and then looking at what you're doing. It's a game, a huge game of spot the difference. I used to love that one as a kid, you know, find um, stuff on the two different pictures. And, and, it, and it is just like that. You're looking at the picture, looking at the, the car. Picture, car, picture. Ah, right, that's wrong. Do right. that. And I, I heard most of what you said, but it cut out a little bit at one spot. Um, are you? Are you typically, like when somebody's far away, are you able to coach them to get good enough pictures for you? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, I figured they, that. They, they, I've asked pictures of people before, and uh, they never come out that well. I, I said to them, been insistent. I said, "Look, I really need good pictures." And it, the the classic one is a picture of the dog in the kitchen with the owner looking down. Right. Uh, so the dog's got this massive hair. The the eyes will be like shining. Um, you won't be able to see any of the detail. It's like, no, no, that's not going to work. Right, okay, bring the dog to my workshop. Um, and it's it's just, it's a standard thing now. It's like, they'll send me pictures. It, it depends. If, if I can do a portrait, and it's like I was doing some cat portraits the other day. Cats aren't too bad. You know, your standard moggy is... is um, Got the same size face, same size head, unless it's one of these thoroughbreds, um, uh, like a Maine Coon or whatever. Um, but you can do a standard face and then just put a patch over one eye or whatever it's got, and that'll work. Um, but if you want a whole sculpt, you've got to get really good pictures. Sure. The day, if you don't get the good pictures, then you're selling yourself short you're not gonna not gonna achieve what you're gonna do because you won't have the sure yeah the the last thing was just do you have any other advice for carvers anything that we didn't talk about uh yeah uh i i would i would say you just need to concentrate um carving a lot of people like think oh yeah we can we can do this carving and they'll have a chainsaw and they'll um, start doing whatever you, you need uh, you might even be really good at using a chainsaw it, it's it's a lot harder than that. It's, um it's a physical mental thing as well and um, my advice is concentrate you don't want an injury off this stuff you know 
you're, you're doing something with a chainsaw that it's not built to do. Chainsaws are made to cut straight lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, straight cut, bang. Not do curves and stuff. You're asking it to not, with a loose chain, not skip the chain off and, and cut you. You know, you try not try to create art and not kill yourself. So, um, yeah, just be aware, concentrate, concentrate what you're doing. Don't get distracted. If, if it means, like, I, I love using music because music, is like, I've always treated art as um, meditation. So back when I would be doing live drawing, it, I would be a meditative state. Someone could be talking to me and I wouldn't hear a word they would say because I'd be so focused on this single thing. And and I find music does that with me because you, you've got the noise of the machine, but it also, when you've got music or something like that going, then that always helps uh, in, in concentration. Um, but yeah, always keep your eye on the ball. Really. Um, it only takes a second to um, lose a limb, and right. um, it's it, uh, yeah. I I don't know whether it's good advice or not, but yeah, just concentrate on what you're doing. Well, I think it is, and I think everybody kind of has to figure out what their meditation or their groove is, because like what mm. what you said about music. I actually always listen to music and one time I started carving without music and I didn't realize it. And I was like, yeah. kind of ornery, <laughs> like, yeah. and I was not doing very well. And I, yeah. I was like, what is going on? Usually I'm so chill and like in the groove. And it was because I didn't have my music on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anything to anything. To sell. If, if, if you're trying to rush something, it's like, um, the old saying, um, forgot what it is. <laughs> Um, uh, it, it, oh, oh, I can't remember the name. You, you, if you if you uh, try and rush something, you, you you go slower. Oh, what is that? What is that saying? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Don't don't try and just push things, and um, and uh, you know. A lot of people are just like, right, I'm going to blast this out. I'm going to uh, go as fast as I can. I'm going to beat everybody on uh, on the field. And, you know, I'm going to get this finished before everyone else. No, no, no. Chill out. Take a step back. Look at what you're doing. Yeah. Because, you know, at the end of the day, it, it, it's, it's not clever to rush this stuff. It, it, yeah, you can do it, but it never turns out great they always make a mistake you know um so yeah it, it's important to you know just concentrate what you're doing don't rush it take it easy you do the best work when you relax that's the good thing about um yeah music you know if you're under pressure the, this is the thing about the, the speed car competition that's why they're so difficult because you're being forced to like just blast something out never turns out 100% great but it it'll do for your your, your average show you know yeah it just it's it's all about awareness really isn't it awareness of your frame of mind awareness of your 
stress involved, awareness about people around you. Um, be aware. Yeah. Cool. Well, that was my last question. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Hey, Norris, it's been nice talking to someone. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Chainsaw Carving Podcast. Please make sure that you go and check out our other episodes. And also, so that we can make sure that more carvers can hear the podcast and learn from other carvers, if you could like it, share it, um, and or give us a rating on wherever you listen to your podcasts.